Are you ready to take your first steps towards financial freedom by investing in property? Whether you're a first-time investor or you started your portfolio but need some help continuing to grow, 2022 REB Buyers Agent of the Year and Rising Star Finalist Lachlan Vidler and his team at Atlas Property Group are here to help. As experts in property investment, Lachlan and his team are ready to help you take your next step in growing your portfolio. By completing the research, sourcing and negotiations, Lachlan goes the extra mile to find you a high-performing investment property. Visit atlaspropertygroup.com.au to book in your discovery call absolutely free of charge. This is a Momentum Media production. Welcome to the Smart Property Investment Show, the podcast by investors for investors. I got everyone. Hey, going Phil Tarrant here, host of the Smart Property Investment Show. I hope you're well thinking about what's uh, going to be happening in Australia in a couple of weeks' time as we go to the polls. Uh, some good research about to come out from uh, Momentum Intelligence, which is is part of the uh, Momentum Media family of organisations, uh, with some insights around the way in which different communities, uh, professional services, property sectors, uh, what policies will be important to them uh, as they go to the election and um, and how they intend to swing their vote. Uh, we'll be able to report on those findings uh, pretty soon. Make sure you keep connected with smartpropertyinvestment.com.au. But there's been some great headlines on smart property investment over the last uh, couple of days, especially sort of giving some narrative around all these different moving parts uh, happening in the economy right now, inflation, repressures. Um, uh, talks of interest rate hikes, uh, ongoing hangovers from COVID and, and what it means for migration, uh, what it means for property prices. There's a lot of noise around that. The yield component for property investors on the rise, uh, which is pretty good news for most if you're right across it. So I wanted to get through some of these headlines today, give some interpretation of it, go behind the news in the studio with me to help me navigate this. Steve Waters, Director of Right Property Group. Steve, how are you going? Yeah, good, Phil. Good to be back. Good to have a couple of back-to-back long weekends as well. Mate, back-to-back long weekends is the way it is, and uh, and that's three in a row, and uh, everyone's back in the work now. Uh, it's a short week this week, but then moving on, uh, we're pretty busy at this uh, moment, and uh, it always the way is we run up to a uh, federal election that's being held on the 21st of May, uh, so get set. But uh, Steve, just some some headlines here on smartpropertyinvestment.com.au that I'd like to get some sense for. First one here, and I sort of touched on it very quickly, Major Bank says inflationary pressure is on the way out. Westpac predicts core inflation will rise to 4% in the second half of 2022. Uh, Westpac economists have matched NAB's previous forecast, placing core inflation at a whopping 1.2% for the March quarter and 3.4% over the year. Well, I think... Uh, it's pretty clear now there's been so much noise around uh, inflation. We saw it sort of touched on in the budget, uh, the government thinking uh, some of the easiest ways to combat inflation was to try and give some breaks back to uh, Aussie punters uh, around fuel and fuel excise and, and see if they could shave some of those uh, taxes off there to try and get continuity on prices. But I think it's a lot more structural than that, Steve. What's the big deal with inflation? Why is it making headlines at the moment? I, I think the short answer to that is because it's a fact. Uh, you know, we've had many, many years decades, in fact, of low inflation. And we're clearly heading into something that's a lot higher than what it has been for quite some time. And to be fair, though, it was always going to happen. I think if the world was, for want of a better term, printing money during COVID to expect not to have some sort of inflationary reaction, you're just burying your head in the sand. And then you combine that with all the bottleneck supplies around the world, including 
manufacturing grain, superphosphate, as an example from the Ukraine war as a byproduct, all of this has a flow-on effect. And it was bound to happen, bound to happen. And here we are. You Then locally, you know, you give the subsidies, you allow the credit to flow at a rate that it hasn't been seen in quite some time. And you know, we are where we are today. And I don't, I don't think it'll get any better for the short term. No, not at all. And you, you mentioned uh, uh, global factors impacting our domestic economy here. Who would have thought? We would have thought that we'd be a semi-major European war again in in Europe, sort of uh, eighty years after World War Two, and and a hundred and eight odd years what it is after World War One. But but that's taking place right now, and the impact on a globalized economy is is being seen. And and for those that don't know, Google. Um, what Ukraine does is a massive, if you look at it on a map, it's a massive country, huge in terms of its natural resources uh, and agriculture, the uh, the breadbasket in many way of uh, Eastern Europe. So, um, you know, this is not a discussion around Ukraine right now, but look at the flow and impacts of that in terms of energy here in Australia. And you look at this point report here, uh, Steve, housing costs are predicted to make the largest contribution to inflation of uh, 0.67 percentage points. Next is transport up 0.38 points uh, contributing. That's auto fuel and motor vehicle expenses. Food is not far behind 0.335 PPT contribution supply uh, broken in by category. Westpac is forecasting 1.7% increase in bread and cereals, 6.6% rise in fruit and veg, and 1.7% rise in meat and seafood prices and 5.6% rise in in dairy prices. So they're tangible uh, uplifts in the cost to live. Uh, rents too, uh, obviously, is a property podcast expected to experience a quarterly boost there, zero point seven percent nationally. I, was I think they've got that wrong. The pack like higher. Yeah, I think that'll be bigger. Uh, I don't think they've got a grasp on just how much of a crisis the uh, you know the current accommodation scenario that we have is, and you know, now that those borders are open, legitimately, with you know, very few hurdles, if any, now to come into the country, if we do get a, a big influx of people nationally, where are they going to live? Mm. And then you couple that with the effect of the building materials, which was mentioned in the uh, Westpac report as well. Mm. That's not going away in a hurry. In fact, it'll probably get worse as time goes on. And think about it in just such a micro point of view. I mean, you've got China now that's locked down Shanghai, which has an enormous effect to the rest of their country and to the manufacturing that it is where we still get a lot of stuff from the most supply chain issues that go along with that. And it, it doesn't ease the burden at all. And so we're, we're into this now for, you know, for, for the foreseeable future. So as a result of that, and you know, coming off what the banks are talking about, we will see the cost of money increase. It's uh, as simple will. as that. It, it's as simple as yeah. that. We will do. And, and interesting, everyone's talking about, uh, it's funny, you don't really hear it a lot, but all these things are going up in value, but but property is going to go down in value, right? And we go, isn't that counter-cyclical to inflation? Westpac says here, similarly, Westpac foresees a 5.4% in dwelling purchase prices, noting that prices are catching up following a full instigated, a lull instigated by the home builder and other state-based housing grants. According to the bank, grants have held the effective price of dwellings 3% below the list price, but the gap expected to close in the March quarter. So inflation is going up. You would assume that. Prices should be going up as well, but you read the headlines, mate. It's completely opposite. Look, to be fair to the economists, I'm really quite certain that they're grappling with you know, what the potential fallout outcomes are going to be over the next 
call it years. Yeah, this is this is not something that's in the books. It's not in the rule books. It's not in the history books to be able to say, well, yeah, with this action is this reaction. Yeah, this is a very unique set of circumstances without shadow of a doubt. And along with that comes scenario situations that we probably haven't experienced altogether, you know, forever. Mm. And, yeah, there will be winners and there will be losers out of this moving forward without a shadow of a doubt. Yeah, there will be. And I think uh, property investors that are well-placed should do well in this uh, next market. And this is interesting. You spoke there about um, uh, the increase of rents purely through supply and demand. And and when you apply an influx of of migration, uh, it's going to be even tighter. Uh, One of the problems we have right now in terms of the housing crisis, it's not really affordability. It's whether or not we've got enough houses for people. So uh, building properties at the moment uh, is a core focus. However, that's got its own supply chain problems, both in terms of material and labour. It's a really interesting story here. Steve Wall interconnected on smartpropertyinvestment.com today. He's investors bank on build to rent sector for future growth. So this is something which is super popular in in Europe and other parts of the world, where, where large corporations will build a big high rise and keep the lot and rent it out rather than selling it all. So this is going to be uh, something that you're going to see becoming a lot more popular here in Australia. And I think this is as Australians and Australia grapples with the idea of the great Australian dream, maybe now is not actually owning a three-quarter acre block or whatever it was, or a quarter acre block and, and putting a picket fence on it, right? This is a high rise in a city living. Uh, the story says uh, the Australian build to rent model is gathering pace, according to a new report, with more new players decided now is the right time to grab investing opportunities in the burgeoning sector. Uh, Biz Oxford Economist's uh, latest report showed there are approximately 25,000 planned build-to-rent units, BTR units, in development around the country with 5,000 expected to break ground annually between 2022 and 2023. Well, who knows what's going to go on with that because a lot of these builders are going to the wall. But mm. with build-to-rent taking a bigger share of the uh, move to department construction, this segment has anticipated the grow at over 10% of the national new apartment supply by 2025, the report forecast. So maybe the build-to-rent sector, this is large-scale uh, residential development will be the bastion of the the institutions and the mum and dad investor guys like me and you are providing um, you know rental accommodation out the burbs, mate. Who knows? Well, I, I yeah, we already do it, don't we? Yeah. In a very small micro version of it, um, we're just not institutional, I guess. I think the problem that uh, and people need to be wary is when we're comparing ourselves to the larger European communities or the American, whatever it may be with much more densified population Mm. and that inner city living. I would be very surprised that along with the build to rent doesn't come or doesn't necessitate higher immigration patterns as well, which are then channeling people into those areas because the government and the builders don't want to be building something that people won't reside in. Do I think it's a good idea? Depends. Do I think it will be successful? I think probably some will be successful at it. But in the back of my mind, because we don't have, I guess, the densified population as those other worldwide locations do, will we see a replication of, to some degree, New South Wales state housing, as an example, who are the biggest landlords in Australia, Mm. creating communities that just aren't viable, both from a monetary point of view and a socioeconomic pattern as well? Yeah, maybe, just maybe, the build to rent instead of the densified areas are out in the burbs, you know, that open up some of those large patches of land that we still have to rezone, to cut the red tape, 
to build communities on a plot of land. Maybe that's the way to go. I'm, I'm still not convinced on it. I think there will be some success without fail. But I also, if I look into the murky crystal ball, I can see in the future there also being socioeconomic problems with it, but also periods of time where they're vacant because of whatever the circumstances are at the time. And this is, you know, social housing has been an ongoing challenge for Australia since its earliest days. And it's the obligation of the state, I believe, and to provide our housing for those that can't provide it for themselves. And I think that's, you know, it's one of the, the great things about growing up in a place like Australia that that takes place. But there's been a number of different experiments over the years and they don't always get it right where they where they go to a pathway saying, okay, let's build these these big sort of social housing zones and say, oh, that's not really working. We actually want to integrate them in with the local suburbs and they keep trying and changing and shifting. And maybe this will be one, another opportunity to, you know, the government may rent the whole block off, you know, one of these large institutions and, and that's that's what you provide. You have them right now. Um, you're going to need to think of some of the housing commission areas, for example, in, in Redfern, which has mm. socioeconomic problems. They're talking about sort of integrating them out and um, intersecting uh, social housing with normal housing. I think that's probably works best for Australia, but, but who knows? Um, be nice to watch how they go about doing this and whether or not there'll be a secondary market for build the rent. Maybe that's what they are now, like, you know, off the plan apartments, essentially just, you know, Correct. secondary market for build to rent. Um, they're just choosing to sell rather than keep. Well, maybe it's even, you know, looking to incentivize the individual to provide the accommodation because, you know, as, once again, just using New South Wales state housing as an example, they've clearly said we are not in the business of landlords and nor do we find it viable. And as a result of that, for many decades now, they've been slowly and systematically selling the assets as they become too expensive to run. So yeah. to speak, and if you look at the bill to rent from a corporation point of view, well, you know, potentially they would argue that we're already incentivizing the, you know, the individual via federally via, um, say, depreciation yeah. uh, or negative gearing or what have you. Maybe that's something that they could look a little more laterally along, so that you don't have corporations that are providing lumps of accommodation. I, I just don't see that as a so viable for Australia. No, 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 I don't. But they also, the governments also have an economic responsibility to get people back to CBD locations. Yeah. And right. the, yeah, they need that wheel to spin from the, you know, the localised economy point of view. Well, you look at just at a sort of lo- localised area, if you think of um, Mount Druitt, Whalen, Tregear, Durick, uh, what else out that way? It starts with E. Uh, Edmonton. Uh, Edmonton. You know, there was that, you know, 10 years ago, all that social housing was sold off to investors largely uh, or otherwise. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think it's been largely a positive thing for areas like like Mount Druitt. And you saw that in their sort of, you know, the, the subtle sort of gentrification in how those suburbs uh, look and feel. Now you've got million-dollar houses out out that way, right? Well, it does. It is the, you know, the, the subtle gentrification of an area, for want of a better term, because nobody looks after a dwelling better than the person who owns it and lives in it. Yeah. And it changes very quickly the streetscape and the patterns, you know, of that particular area. And it's that's replicated throughout the whole of Australia. I'm only just using New South Wales as an example. Yeah. Same in Queensland and every other state and territory. Well, Melbourne's uh, been an interesting market of late. And with a story here, SofaProtInvestment.com, around property market update, Melbourne, March 2022. So we normally write these up um, when the month concludes. Uh, let's have a chat about that. Steve, we'll just go to a break before and stay with us back in a moment. Ever wondered how you can invest like the top 1% of Australian property investors? 
Henderson Advocacy has been at the forefront of helping everyday Aussies improve their financial freedom. So if you're a savvy investor or someone just starting out on their property journey, give Henderson Advocacy a call today. Head to www.henderson.com.au. Don't invest alone, invest smarter. Welcome back, everyone. Phil Tarrant, host of the Smart Property Investment Show with Steve Waters, Director, Right Property Group. We're behind the headlines trying to give some sense to it all. Uh, Steve, property market update, March 2022 for Melbourne. Uh, the autumn season didn't just bring a chill to the air, but Melbourne property market too, as the city's dwelling values fell in March, as uh, the factors that drove growth throughout the boom continue to lose their edge. Experts warm faster declines in coming months. So this is interesting, Steve, because you read some stories and you would think property markets right across Australia are in free fall or cooling, um, and that's not the case. There is many markets still merging, urging, forging ahead. Um, this says here in 2021, Sydney and Melbourne were the standard bearers for uniform property boom. They saw prices skyrocket in every capital city, but this year is different. At the end of the first quarter, 2022, we're looking at a more fractured Australian property market, one in which the two biggest cities in Australia are on the tail end of a property frenzy and lagging behind their capital city peers. According to industry observers, the factors that have given the cities a golden touch in the previous year have now lost their potency. And the white hot real estate frenzy in New South Wales and Victorian capitals is now all but dissipated. A recent data revealed that property price growth in the city of Melbourne has come to a standstill and cutting both at markets well and truly peak. Now, Tim Lawless, who we know, Steve, um, over at Core Logic, uh, he's a research director. He joined the chorus of real estate commentators who believe that the boom is over Sydney and Melbourne. Quote, we now see these markets either right at the top of their cycle and about to start to move into a consistent downward or potentially already moving into a downturn, he said. Uh, CoreLogic's data, Steve, showed Melbourne's housing market had been quarterly growth rate uh, slow to 5.8% in April last year to 0.1% over the last three months. Are you seeing this ground truth on the ground? Certain areas, we, we certainly are through both Sydney and Melbourne uh, without a shadow of a doubt, but there are still select areas that are performing normally, mm. dare I say it. I mean, the- and Normally is good. Yeah, well, it is. And the paradigm is it's, you know, from not Tim here, but just the media in general is that there can never be a happy ground. It's either boom or bust. There's nothing ever in the middle, I guess, because it doesn't make headlines. But there are certainly areas that have contracted and we've seen areas of Sydney and Melbourne do that. But that's also coming off the back of some record growth. So when we reverse engineer those numbers, maybe as the future rolls on, they'll be in line with the historical averages. And you're going to go back and look at these, look at this in a moment in time, two years' time and go, okay, that looks you're going to be a slight wiggle to a bar graph or a or a column. And you go, yeah, that's all a normal market. Interestingly, then I I tend to subscribe to this point. Uh Commonwealth Bank uh, head of Australian economics, uh, Gareth Aird, weighed in that the figures are a testament to how some buyers have hit their limit on what they can afford to pay for a property. And that and just there it is. There, there is a ceiling of what people can afford to buy. And therefore, again, it's supply and demand. If you have less people that can afford expensive properties, it stabilizes the prices and it just sets a price point for properties that can't go up. Well, property will continue to go up in Australia over the years ahead, but it's going to move in peaks and troughs. Um, uh, it's never vertical. Only so much you can pay. It's never a lineal you know, growth chart so to speak. It does have those you know, peaks and troughs and rolling up and down. The trajectory is up, however. Mm. Uh, but look, I would agree with what he says. And in every cycle that, that I've experienced, there becomes a moment in time where the ceiling has been reached. 
due to affordability in combination with funding elements, I guess is a way to put it. And yeah, we are at the end, I would guess, or in that top quartile of the lending cycle. Yeah, where the the credit has slowed via the different mechanisms in behind the scenes. And that plays with the amount that the banks are willing to lend and also in line with what people can afford. Because there are two types of affordability. One is what the banks tell you you can afford and the other is what you know you can afford. And Mm. often the two are not on the same page. No, and you need to determine that yourself. But I I think finally, I think one of these economists have got it pretty right. Steve, uh, he added that the major capitals have likely peaked and values fell due to buyers already stretched budget. Yes, that's right. And that's their budgets, not what the bank says you can borrow. Uh, the evidence is pretty clear. Uh, he says prices have peaked in the two biggest capital cities. Affordability has become stretched because prices have gone up so much. There is a limit on how they can go, how high they can go. You can't continue to grow indefinitely. And that affordable picture has kicked in early in Sydney and Melbourne, he said. So, you know, what needs to happen now is it just got to be this, this point. And this is back to the inflation point of view and then also how that's connected with wage growth and therefore what the Reserve Bank of Australia, the RBA, uh, will do with interest rates. Do they actually want to see genuine wage growth before they start tinkering with that? Yes, prices have gone up, but they haven't yet seen that clear wage growth uh, happening that shows that with this continued price increases, whether or not Australians and Australia can sustain it. So it's pattering out at the property level, whether or not, and you, you hear these stories, Steve, I don't know what you see in your business of of this little or no wage growth, uh, everyone I know is getting pay rises left, right, and centre. I don't know what's going on. Maybe yeah, just everybody. <laughs> yeah, look, I I subscribe to that. I know a lot of business owners that cannot find staff. Everyone from yeah you know, the restaurant owner, cafe worker, through to accountants and everything in between. There is a real shortage throughout Australia. And look, if that if it keeps that way, well, then there will continue to be wage growth pressures, I guess. Conversely, if the borders are now open fully and we do get an influx, well, maybe that will subdue that rate of growth in terms of wages as well. And I know there's an argument in the back rooms around that as well. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, but 100% definitely there is wage growth. Maybe the numbers just haven't been apparent yet. They haven't been reported on. Well, most of them struggling, particularly at the hospitality level, you can't find staff these days there. They're saying the POMs come out to Australia, we'll give you a $3,000 sewing on bonus and pay your rent for a little while just to get people into pubs and the discotheques yeah. that you probably frequent every the, Saturday night. The disc- <laughs> discotheques, I haven't heard that word ever. <laughs> but um, that doesn't mean that uh, property is, uh, you know, there, there is, isn't still challenges with affordability. And we see that as a key uh, election issues. We move out and both, both parties pretty much saying as a run up to election, saying we, we will do something on affordability. Well, Every political party for the last 100 years has been saying we'll fix affordability and this election cycle is no distance, but a really interesting story here. We'll get into it. Just go to another break. Uh, Back in a moment. It's time to get help. Interest rates are increasing. Inflation has hit an extraordinary 5.1% and the chance to secure a golden egg property is getting narrower by the day. Dragan from Buyers Agency Australia has been presenting the facts and helping property investors make smarter, well-informed, educated decisions in property for years. So what are you waiting for? Get in touch with Dragan today at www.buyersagencyaustralia.com.au. Invest with integrity. Welcome back, everyone. Phil Tarrant from the Smart Property Investment Show with Steve Waters, Right Property Group, getting behind the stories and the news as we lead up to the federal election um, and whoever's going to be 
uh, the steward uh, of um, what will be an interesting time for Australia moving forward, spiking inflation, rising rates, a more um, contested uh, geostrategic geopolitical position for Australia, wars in Europe. It's a very interesting time. Um, but the big thing around uh, affordability, Steve, story here, smartpropertyinvestment.com.au, 20 affordable suburbs within commuting distance of capital cities. And this is always interesting. Most people think you hear uh, segments will complain about housing affordability in Australia. And uh, yes, if you're 23 years old and you've got your first job paying $55,000 a year, whatever getting, guess what? You're not going to be able to buy a $2 million property in the CBD. Just get on with it, right? Just That's just the way it is. You've got to look elsewhere to start building your wealth. So at, at a point in time, you can buy that potential forever home. We say investing in those areas. Steve, the cost of housing versus the distance you have to spend commuting to your workplace is an equation that Australians have been grappled with at some point in their lives. That's why each quarter rent, rabbit.com.au releases a tenancy opportunity report to identify the 20 suburbs where tenants can find affordable rents within commuting distance of the state's capital. I'll read some of these out, mate, and this is good for property investors as well. Shellwater, Western Australia, 20Ks from the capital, 265 bucks. Caulfield East, Victoria, 14Ks of capital, 285 Kingsville, Victoria, eight kilometres, three hundred bucks. Uh, Brooklyn Park, South Australia, six kilometres, three ten, all the way out till you get to sort of number eleven, Osborne Park, WA, three thirty. Roselands, New South Wales, thirteen kilometres, three thirty five. So rents are still reasonably manageable close to the CBD. It doesn't give you any sense though what you're renting, whether it's a a bed sit or a shed in someone's backyard. Oh, look, I. As you were reading those suburbs out, I could nearly guarantee because I know the areas that they're units, whether they're one or two bedders or studios, uh, I'm not quite sure. Uh, so while it's a little ambiguous, the the report, if you really do need the accommodation, it is it is there. Just depends on what you're really looking for. Mm. You know, if you're a, if you're a, a larger family, call it three kids, well, you're not going to be going into a studio. At Roselands, no, um, you're not. You're probably going to be out western suburbs of Sydney somewhere. Correct. So, yeah. So, what would be really interesting is if the report was done into those subsets, and that's the point. And a lot of people are obsessed with this idea that investment grade blue chip property needs to be within five kilometres of Sydney. Choose your number; it doesn't matter. It's going to depend on on where the where the capital is. And there is some merit to that argument. However, that doesn't need to be of a 2,000 postcode, 3,000 postcode, 4,000 postcode, 8,000 postcode. If you take uh, the Sydney metropolis as an example, you've got 10 big CBDs uh, all located within it that have their own mini micro economies. They're cities in their own right. Blacktown, for example, is a city. And if you think, if you draw a a bubble from you know the central coast of New South Wales up around Penrith and and down um, to the Shire, uh, you're going to catch a lot of micro CBDs in there where the same adage applies. You know, yes, you know you need to be able to live your life and uh, associate yourself in, within that immediate connectivity. And I know people that are investing in Hornsby. I know people that are investing in Parramatta. I know people are investing in Penrith. I know people are investing in in Campbelltown. I know people are investing in anywhere. The logic holds true, but. You don't need to be in a couple of city postcode for that to hold true. No, not at all. I've never subscribed to that. And so you, really, read, you read stories sometimes and you would think that's it. The CBD has to be a major Australian city to be a Oh, city. look, yeah. I, I read a, interestingly enough, I read an article by someone else, wouldn't be a week ago, saying exactly that. You must invest, you know, if we call it postcode 2000 or mm. five minutes around it. And 
you know, I think that's it's a it's a very dangerous piece of narrative. I mean, if you're wanting to invest and if you've read an article like that, you'll be saving for the next 20 years before you can afford yeah. and to it's invest unaffordable. in that area. It, it is Correct. actually unaffordable for most. Correct. And but it's also unaffordable for most of the the tenants. Mm. I mean, the, the mortgage belts, as an example, throughout Australia hold the most people. And they have great infrastructure, great employment nodes, great transport, schools, hospitals, because that's where the majority of Australia live. Now, granted, if you were to have a $2 million asset and got 10% growth versus a half a million dollar asset and got 10% growth, well, the dollar amount is clearly more attractive on the on the $2 million scenario. But let's start to equate what the holding costs of that and the difference between income and expenditure and the the pressures that they may put upon certain individuals to control that if you subscribe to that theory only. Now, I'm not saying that it's not a good idea. I just believe there's a dozen, two dozen, three dozen price brackets throughout Australia where you could invest into and get good results, but it all comes back to your own unique circumstances. It does. It's, it's just just taking off the blinkers and, and looking at each individual market and, and the same applies for regional markets. And you think of I sort of mentioned Sydney there. Um, the Central Coast is like one of the fastest growing regional areas of Australia right now. It is part of Sydney, but it's its own, it's its own micro climate, its own micro economy, and it's rocketing along. And and Steve, you must be seeing good value in regional markets uh, at the moment. Anywhere specifically or in particular that that tickles your fancy? Well, you mentioned the Central Coast. We get one one time per cycle to enter, in other words, purchase on the Central Coast and Wollongong because they're like bookend markets. Yeah. And we started buying there just after the last federal election. And then, then as COVID hit, we doubled down. Now, prior to that, it was at you know, the midst or and the end of the GFC that we could, the numbers stacked up for us. And we've seen tremendous growth over the last, let's call it three years on the central coast in all walks and shapes and fashions. But what we're also seeing to this day is such an undersupply of accommodation where even two-bedroom granny flats, as an example, uh, getting 400 to $420 per week and people are fighting for them and offering more money and prepaying in advance to secure the accommodation. Now, this goes all the way back to the, the accommodation crisis that we were talking about earlier on. But there are regional areas throughout Australia that are experiencing the same type of phenomenon around that lack of accommodation and growth. But is the question is, has COVID exposed these areas in a good way or yeah, there's some areas throughout regional Australia that are reacting as a result of COVID and may not have the sustainability, and time will tell. Time will tell, and um, it looks like this flexible working lark's around forever now, so I think structurally how Australians will work will be good for regional markets moving forward, and, and you see, we've all seen the numbers go up uh, in all these areas, um, and whether they're going to force Aussies back into the office, I, I, I don't know. But if you've got these um, knowledge workers who are able to live in these regional areas, uh, the flow on is that uh, those local economies shine. They need electricians. They need plumbers. They need their fancy city coffees. They need their fancy city restaurants. They need their boutiques and uh, and bottle shops and all that sort of stuff. So these are all, you know, this population shift, which is a, a COVID uh, pandemic uh, outcome, I think we'll hold Australian goods there moving forward. There's one story here, and we'll probably close with this, Steve, on smartpropertyinvestment.com.au. Gold Coast Million Dollar Property Club grows amid pandemic boom. Uh, the number of properties on the Gold Coast fetching seven-figure price tags and if it increased during the pandemic, new analysis showed 
While other markets predicted peak in the coming months, the premium Gold Coast market has shown no signs of slowing down with more than 5,600 properties selling during the last 12 months for over a million bucks. The figures are a staggering 67.4% jump from the 3778 trophy properties that have sold in the region during the previous year. The Gold Coast is, is peak peak and bust, feast and famine. Uh, maybe this mm. is just another cycle of it, but no doubt accelerated that whole southeast Queensland, Steve, accelerated by by COVID. Um, Brisbane, uh, southeast Queensland is, is booming at the moment, thankfully, coast. finally. Yeah. Well, look, it's in relation to the Gold Coast, it, it, you mentioned it is a sort of a peak and peak and bust type of market. This type, it may be a little different and that it really does depend upon the unit market and the pipeline that's with it because there is a big part of the Gold Coast which has always necessitated or the accommodation has been there for the the population that is not transient, yeah. which then turns up really around the, uh, the unit or attached accommodation. You combine that with the fact, as you mentioned, that potentially the the, the well-paid white-collar worker because of COVID has changed locations from whether it be Sydney or Melbourne in, you know, predominantly into these areas. And the sunny coast is another great example and, and Brisbane mm. because their employment type allows them to do so. And I, I've had probably 14 to 16 clients who have done exactly that, who have lived in Melbourne and some in Sydney and they've owned their houses uh, in say Melbourne and they've moved to Queensland and bought again to reside up there because their work allows them to do so. And in fact, probably over 50% of their employers have encouraged them to do so. And these are mainly in the tech space in some way, shape or form. But with that, and you mentioned it as well, with that, when you have the high paid, high disposable income cohort that move into an area, along with that almost starts to self-propel the localised economy because of the need for services. And it becomes a revolving, self-fulfilling prophecy to somewhat, uh, as long as the employment scenario stays solid. Because at the end of the day, you need jobs. You need jobs. It's, jobs it's not just important. But you look at the unemployment Correct. rate. So even, you know, I was talking about this sort of great reshuffle. Um, you know, if you want a job in Australia, you're in a knowledge worker, you're probably going to be able to get yourself a job pretty easily. So the continuity of that, those jobs uh, will remain. It's just how long that will remain for until you see, you know, again, supply and demand. Um, I think uh, whoever is successful come um, late May at the election, uh, be a general item for them is going to be, you know, skilled migration. We're going to get more people into Australia as quickly as possible, whether or not that'll buttress uh, property markets moving forward, uh, who knows. But one good indicator, Steve, when you start seeing dog groomers arriving on your high street, you know, there's a lot of money washing have around. You, have, you got them? have you got them? Have you got them? When you start seeing small bars, dog groomers and, and fancy restaurants uh, rather than fish and chip shops, there's a good indicator, mate, of uh, gentrification uh, is in place and nail salons. Nail salons, yeah. It will be very interesting to see what the immigration patterns are over the next 12 months because that's, as we've mentioned earlier on, that could – very well underpin the value of residential real estate uh, as that sort of downward pressure on or upward pressure on the rents continues to go to go along and therefore as we've discussed before the commercial filter upon residential real estate will really come into uh into force and underpin the value cool well mate we've got through some headlines there give us some sense of the world so good time to be investing in property no doubt I think I think it's it's always good. It just really depends on where, what, and how. Yeah, that's the secret. 
It is. Who knows? I don't know. Don't ask me. Um, but I know some people that do know. Um, anyway, Steve Waters, Right Property Group, thanks for your time today. Do enjoy it. Pleasure as always. Nice. Remember to check out smartpropertyinvestment.com.au. Uh, any questions that you have for us, uh, we're, we're probably due a Q&A episode. Um, I'm sure Steve will be happy to come on. Uh, we're happy to answer any question you have. Uh, email the team, editor at smartpropertyinvestment.com.au. We'll get them curated and then we'll answer them all on air. Uh, please remember, a quick favour for me if you keep those reviews coming wherever you listen to this podcast. Most of you on, on Apple, uh, the team get a real kick out of it. They do all the heavy lifting with this, uh, the producers and the post-production people, uh, and they are the unsung heroes of this property podcast. Uh, we'll see you again next time. Until then, bye-bye. The information featured in this podcast is general in nature and does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property, or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you. Guests appearing on this podcast may have a commercial relationship with the companies mentioned. It's safe to say the property market has been red hot over the last few years, with some of the markets we've selected in 2021 rising over 40% in a 12-month period. It's very likely that if you're a property owner, your property has gone up 20% minimum in value in the past 12 months, and you have most likely accrued sizable equity that can be recycled and extracted to build your investment portfolio. With interest rates increasing, you might be wondering where to invest to maximise capital growth and cash flow in 2022 and beyond. Well, to save you time, energy and guesswork, award-winning author and regular guest on the Smart Property Investment podcast, Paul Glossop and his team at Pure Property Investment have outlined the top 30 affordable suburbs poised for strong capital growth over the next few years with sound cash flow. Grab your free Top 30 Guide to Property Investment Guide today at purepropertyinvestment.com.